Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is this the real life or is this just a fictional reality? Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Fictional Reality. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for listening. I hope you've been enjoying this season of Fictional Reality. Uh, in the back end here, we have had a bunch of changes, and I have listened to a fair bunch of stuff, and I've realized a few of my values as a podcast creator. Um, one of them is, I'm not gonna, I will not advertise. You will not get an advertisement from me. I'm sorry. This thing is gonna be free for you, and I'm not gonna get paid to do it, and I'm not gonna put advertisements in front of them. Um, that is just something I want for this podcast. It is an expression of, it's an expression of a lot of things and I would like to just keep it as something that is free to me to want to do what I do, whatever I want to do with it. Um, so bringing money via advertisement into it seems just like a bad idea. So I'm not going to do it. So yeah, there you go. Uh, I don't like podcasts that waffle on at the start about housekeeping, so we're going to get straight into it. This week I talk with an LA-based experienced designer named Tommy Honton. If you don't know his name and you want to be an experienced designer, then this is your first bit of homework. Go and research this person. Go and research the networks in which they are connected because Tommy is a very widely respected and widely regarded experienced designer within the field and has been working in there for some time. He was a writer within the film and television industry for many years before breaking out and becoming an experienced designer to which there are other podcasts that um tommy discusses his sort of how he became one and i think for a lot of us it was something we loved as kids you know it was the treasure hunts the scavenger hunts the mystery the adventure that sparked us up and got us playing pretend and you know as adults (laughs) we're just older more financially irresponsible or have more financial freedom um, to just be the kids we always wanted to be. Some of us are lucky enough to be able to explore that in a more meaningful way. And that's what Tommy does. Tommy is an experienced designer with a heart, I would like to say. He's someone who cares about his players and the people who experience his experiences. Um, He is inspired to deliver meaningful experiences, which is something I really resonate with as well. And I think is potentially, I dare I say the difference between sort of art and job or vocation where you want to create something that actually is designed as an experience, but provides people with something meaningful. And it was great to talk to Tommy and and, and pick his brain about his process, about how he views the industry and about how he views, um, as I said, his process. It's inspired me. And ever since we have, um, we've we've had a few discussions and after each one, I come away just feeling invigorated. So uh, if you're listening to this, Tommy, thank you very much. I am going to let the podcast do the talking for itself. You will feel yourself seamlessly glide into it in a moment. But I will tell you, this is the second last episode of Fictional Reality for this season. I have been in 2020 for a while. I'm going to do a little bit of time traveling for a bit. Um, I'll come back. Don't worry. I will be releasing episodes in 2020 in the future. But feel free to listen to the rest of the back catalog while you wait. Without much further ado... Here is Tommy Hunter. Thank you. Oh, sorry, yeah, I saw the recording pop up, so I figured we'd keep going. So please feel free to edit or change or whatever you want to do. Yeah, great. I probably won't edit too much, but I will just say for anyone listening now, uh, we've already started the podcast. So if you're here, thank you for joining us. Uh, I have uh, Tommy Honton in a, in a moment. I'll, um, I'll get you to introduce yourself for anyone that isn't familiar with you. 
Um, this is an experience design podcast about um, where, yeah, I talk to people such as you, um, sort of about your process, what you do, what you're working on. Um, it's a thinly veiled mask for me to learn off people that um, I'm, I sort of fan over. So I really appreciate you you coming on. And um, yeah, what you were just talking about in that you have to sort of convince people to take on your ideas. I, I do a little bit of um, content writing for a, a team building company. And um, I was reading about how, you know, uh, sort of team building and such. And I read this great article on behavioral change and how most experiences or most, most employees or team leaders, what they want to instill in their employees is behavioral change. They want to change some sort of behavior, um, usually to create more money. Like they want more sales. So what they're going to do is they're going to change the behavior of their employees, either to enjoy their job or to work harder or, you know, to be more convincing or whatever. And so team building is a system that tries to instill some sort of behavioral change. And I'm reading this being like, oh, cool. What's the best way to instill behavioral change is to have an emotional experience. And so if your team can have an emotional experience, um, whether that's bonding or collaboration or the, the sense of validation from peers or respect, then their behavior is going to change toward the company and hopefully achieve that company's outcome. And I, I sort of light went off in my head and I was like, oh, that's really good. So I wrote an article on it. I gave it to my, my boss and he was just, he just took one look at the article and was like, yeah, I'm not sure about this. I, it's very wordy. Um, yeah. Maybe add some pictures. And then the light flicked on in my head of like, wait a minute. My job is not, my job right now is to have behavioral change in my employer I want to instill behavioral change in my employer so that he says, this is a good article and takes it on board. And so I, I simply did just, I broke up the article into a few paragraphs, changed almost none of the words and just added a few pictures down it so he could scan it and see, see how the, the thing flowed. And then I delivered that to him. And sure enough, I gave him an, a simpler experience, one that had a little bit more joy in it of looking at the work. And it was like, yeah, this is great. Thank you, you know, for more or less rewriting it. And I was like, yeah, I didn't really rewrite it. I just made it easier, made your experience of it a little bit better. And that's when I realized, well, the game of the experience designer, especially like in a consulting project situation, is you have your own game to play. You are playing with the experience of, especially if you're trying to get in at the ground floor, like I have a lot of times, um, you're trying to make the experience easy for that, that gatekeeper of right. like, you can't go in and just be like, I had this great idea. And so put the onus on them to go, Oh, excuse me to their boss. Excuse me. Sorry to interrupt you, but I've just been told of a great idea. Like you're going to just piss someone off, but to somehow give them all of the information they need to go to their boss and be like, here is the thing you've been looking for. Yeah. Um, I'm solving a problem for you. So, right, right, right. Um, and you were just touching on that. So I'd love to hear more about your experience with, with doing that for people. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, I'm lucky that in my previous life, I came to LA, I worked at Disney and I came out to do writing and TV uh, for TV and film. And I came out with a very different expectation of uh, sort of how that business worked. And I got a writing partner uh, and, made some friends who supported me and we, we got some good traction going, but the problem was I did not know what to do in the rooms. Uh, and I, I should have gotten better advice, but I had a real chip on my shoulder. I was like, I, I got this figured out. I'm a smart guy. And there was a bit of arrogance and, you know, arrogance and ignorance are a very dangerous combination. <laughs> um, and I thought I had to figure it out. So we go in these rooms and, you know, these rooms are really chances for writers uh, to get into creators to get discovered. And it doesn't mean that someone's going to walk out of the room and give you a bag of money. It can happen, but it's pretty rare. The people you're meeting at those meetings are probably low-level uh, creative executives. But you know what a low-level creative executive becomes is eventually they're going to become high-level creative executives and producers. And it is you're building connections. You're networking. You're becoming a familiar entity because they may not ever go for an idea you have that year or even five years from now. But if you are a decent enough human being and they like you, and you keep producing work that's somewhat decent, they become familiar with you. And that becomes something that's easy to produce because they can say, oh yeah, I know this guy. This guy is a known entity. It's about being known and if are you risky. And I was only to put in that work. 
And that became a really harsh lesson later when I'm like, oh, you know, not to say I would be this giant clamoring success in, in that world, but just looking at the people that were successful whose work I didn't really like hmm. was like, what is with these people? They're getting all these scripts sold. And the, the lessons I learned from that were twofold. One is the relationship building. And I really had a hard time building that relationship concept up in the idea of, I hate using people. I'm very sincere and I don't like, and it's when someone's like, I'm sincere, I promise. No, I can't fake my disdain for people. And that's part of why I don't do well in the networking game. If right. I'm bored or outright dislike you, it's pretty clear. I only like to be around people whose values and ideas I, I respect. Um, and, and I wasn't getting a lot of that in, the, in that industry. Mm. And it became really easy. Um, I often told people I disagreed with them, which apparently people really don't like hearing when you're in a room and they're trying to like, you know, basically you're trying to pitch you, your ideas to them. And you're like, no, that's a bad idea. I don't like what you're going to do with the thing that you want to buy from me. Um, <laughs> really bad advice. Don't do that. <laughs> um, on the other end, it was also learning about the, uh, I think learning about the process of how creation is helpful in, you know, shaping we would shape content oftentimes for what we thought people wanted rather than what we wanted. And so it was stuff that I didn't really believe in or like, and I didn't really care. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it would happen where we'd be sitting in a room and we'd pitch the thing we'd prepared for and like, yeah, I don't really like it. What else you got? And you can say nothing. Nice to see you. Take care. Bye. Mm -hmm. Or you could pull out something and try something else. And so I always had, this thing I'd be chewing through my, in my head about like something I liked and I'd pull that out. And because I cared about it, I was able to wax poetic on it a little bit more articulately. Right. And that was a big sort of lesson of like, Oh, if I don't believe in it, it comes across pretty clearly that, that they won't either. And right. so it was about really belief, belief in two different things. Do I really like them and believe in them as people? And if I, if I don't, I can't be around them. It's tough. I can't, it's hard. And I can, I've gotten better at it, but if I'm actually building a relationship with someone, it's, it's real tough if I don't like them. So mm. I've had to learn, I can only really network with people in the sense that I actually care about them and I want to support them. And so it's, it, it's a two-way street, I feel. When I meet someone and want to support them, and I genuinely believe that, it's me sort of extending myself out and saying like, hey, I believe in you, I want to help. Right. You know, and not, not the other way around, saying like, I want your help. Mm. It's, I don't like asking people for help. I like just asking if I can help others. And that seems to help without even realizing it. I never knew that that would actually pay off to me, and that was never the goal. So about building that and also believing the material, believing the stuff, which is so silly to think about. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was about being able to be very conscientious and intent and have intention with what I was making. And this is back in film and TV. And, mm. you know, I, I kind of lost passion for that. But then going into experience design, it, the lessons came back. But I had been able to learn them without burning any bridges in experience design. Right. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who thought I was an arrogant jerk. In, or kind of clueless. We did piss off a fair number of people, or I did, uh, <laughs> by just disagreeing with them or like, you know, making faux pas in those spaces. But right. I was lucky I learned those lessons in a space that I walked away from mm. um, very like happily and jumped into this space and realized the value of, I really have to believe in my ideas and believe in the people I'm working with. And if I don't, then I don't, I don't do it. I just, I can't commit to it. And does that change the way that you may disagree with something now? Like when you were saying you pissed off a few people, because I'm sure, is there a difference between disagreeing constructively and disagreeing in sort of like maybe a naive or arrogant way? Yeah, I think, I think it's twofold. I think one is absolutely, and I could have been a lot nicer. And I think I let my feelings get the best of me and not knowing where people are coming from. It's like, they're making a suggestion. And uh, I mean, yes, in film and TV, there are bad executives who do make bad suggestions but you don't want to tell them that because they're the ones probably that are helping sign your paycheck or making the thing happen. Yeah. Um, it's, you have to be a ninja and sort of figure out how to get what you want, mm. but you also have to accept who's the one holding the purse strings. If you're not the one producing your film, there is a certain amount you're willing to fight for it, but you always have to be willing to walk away if you believe in it that much. Yeah, Otherwise, right. you have to accept the fact that like, this thing gets made with or without you, Mm. And you can have your say and fight for it and eventually get cut loose, or you can find a way to compromise. And so I think for, for me, it was about knowing what my line was. There's a really beautiful scale of uh, how much do I actually give an F? And right. you want to rate it. And if you're like, do I really care? And if it's a 10, then yeah, fight for it. Mm. But understand the consequences. You might need to walk away. 
you mm. might not be the right person for the project. You might need to be able to hang back and say like, yeah, this is, you know, something I really believe in. And you can make an articulate point, but it should never be about fighting. Um, it should never be about fighting someone. Because I think the biggest thing is like, it's never personal. Mm. And it rarely is. It, it can be. But I think it's just making it this thing that is, you know, um, it's a business. It's business. Yeah. And, and I've often found, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, and I've often found those, I've had some interim, uh, moments where I've disagreed with someone and been like, ah, this is not going to work, working on a production and sort of, you know, here's my two cents and have just let go out of a thing of like, I don't care enough, you know, sure do the thing yeah. that I don't think is going to work. And then it's been nice to have been proven wrong and see that it actually has worked. And I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I didn't hold on to that because now I learned right. that uh, I was wrong. And that's the thing too, is I think for me, it's also trust. I think there's a really good thing to, is the lesson I learned in college was, you know, um, I had a really good teacher who said, if you find someone you like, follow them. Not in a stalkerish way, but the idea that when you, when you, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, from a creative standpoint, when there are people you jive with, stick with them and trust mm. them. And so now that I, I'm lucky to be very picky about what I work on, the people that hire me, they're hiring me. Mm. My job is to make things for them and to satisfy them so that they look good. And I want to support that. Mm. And if I'm not doing that, I need to internalize that and figure out, okay, how do I support them the best I can? Right. Now, I obviously have guardrails, which is like, I'm not going to murder people. I'm not going to go against something <laughs> I believe in. I'm not going to go and say something I don't agree with. You know, I, I, outside of those, I'll do what I can to support the people I care about, including people that want to hire me. Mm. Um, I, want, I want them and the brand and everything to look good. Um, and if it's with a person I respect, yeah, I'm going to listen. And I'll find a reason. I'll, I'll listen to all the thoughts brought into it. But a good example is like if we're talking about um, hypothetically um, there was an event where there was a, a large opening. Um, the idea was it would basically start with people waiting outside in a line. Mm -hmm. And then they'd be pulsed through in a large group. And then they'd enter a space and could free roam. Mm. Um, there was an argument over how big the opening group size should be. Right. And the thing that I kept saying was, it needs to be 10 or fewer. It has to be. And they were arguing, no, really, it's better to have 15 or 20. I'm like, no, we need 10 or fewer. The fewer, the better. It shouldn't be one. That's silly. It mm. shouldn't be a million. That's silly. Mm. And it shouldn't be, we should err on the side of small. And I kept pushing and saying, yes, it will slow down the overall flow, but we just stagger the wait times, like the, you know, the arrival times. That way people aren't waiting in line too long. Mm. But then we just find things, entertain them in the line. But the idea is that this is the calling card uh, for the opening, and it sets the whole tone. And they're able to wander in large groups, but it's like you need to be able to create that intimate moment at the beginning to set the tone for it. Right. And I really believed in that. And so I made the point and argued it and brought some evidence about why it works and talked about my experience. And the, the people that were sort of at the gatekeeping point, they, they, they realized that it was you know, a point that was worth considering. And it was really about when I approached other people on the project and said, like, I'm not trying to pick sides, but it's like, do you see my point? And they said, yeah. And I said, Is any, have you gone through something and experienced, think of being in a large crowd. And, and it was really about being able to call to them individual experiences they've had. And it helps when you're working with creatives who have gone mm. through and done stuff in the market, who have yeah. done, you know, because one of the big keys is that if you're investing in something, you should absolutely have gone and seen or researched everything that's in an adjacent, you know, space. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so thankfully, because of my very polite insistence and ability <laughs> to call specific things. It's like, that was something I believed in. And, and later on, someone's like, you, you were right about that. Like, right. I'm sorry for fighting because they were more focused on the logistical side. And it's like finding a compromise. If they mm. had said, okay, we can only get 15 or I would have found a way, okay, we need to make this space bigger. Or can we do two openings where it's the same physical space mirrored and you can bring two groups in at once. That right. way they still get the intimacy or you split them up. And so you can make compromises to mm. still get the vibe, but it really is about knowing what you're arguing for and finding a way to make the compromise with someone who's like, look, this is going to add to the budget. I can't do it. Mm. So can we do a compromise that's budget conscience? But it really is about problem solving and instead of being a high-minded idea. Like, again, there are things that I will absolutely walk away from. Like there was a approach by Saudi Arabia to do something for a festival there. And I, you know, was 
tempted to send back something very offensive, like, yeah, I dismember the journalist or something like, just to show my, my disregard for, like, I don't want to support the Saudi regime when you are dismembering journalists and fighting, like, you know, human rights. Right. Um, I opted just to pass, you know, in a very polite way, mm. but it really came to, I don't want to support a regime. And there, there are times I've had to work on projects where I am questioning the brand or the country I'm working with mm. and saying, like, does the good of the project outweigh the client or what is the ultimate message here? That's the only time I'll ever consider, you know, something where like, I will walk away from that aspect. But mm. on the whole, I want to support a project. And there are times that things will happen that I don't agree with. But provided that they aren't endangering lives or creating a message I don't agree with, you know, I accept that I'm not able to be perfect in everything I do. And so, you know, I, I support trying to problem solve as best as I can. Right. And on that note, so uh, now that you, you, you know, you're Tommy Houghton, you have uh, a website. Oh, yes. And what, uh, how do you choose your projects now? You're out of the film business and you can follow your own nose, so to speak. Um, what yeah, I mean, I technically... Excited? I technically still am. Uh, I had a very bad movie made a couple years ago with my writing partner. Um, don't ever watch it, please. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think film and TV are interesting because they are very established mediums and people know what film and TV are. Mm. But what is amazing about experience design is that the format is so wide open. It, it, it is basically a, a palette you have and every color is a separate format or medium you can use. Yeah, that's you can a great, paint with, great picture. Mm. Yeah, you can paint with one color or you can paint with multiple colors. Mm -hmm. So for me, the stuff that I like to pick are stuff that challenges me. Um, yeah. I like playing with different colors um, and different formats. Mm -hmm. And I like doing things that scare me a little bit where right. I can learn. And I like working with people I respect. Um, you know, if I can work with a brand or an IP that I really admire, um, if I have a chance to create something really special, if I have a chance to learn something, you know, mm -hmm. I try to get as lump as all those things as I can. And there are things that I'll take just for money if I have to, but those are pretty rare. If it's usually doing a favor for someone, I'll do it. Um, if I like the person, I want to support them, but it really is me trying to find the larger scale stuff. That's interesting. That's challenging and kind of hits those benchmarks of, you know, can I learn from it? Does it have some interesting aspect of either, you know, playing with the space in some interesting way, you know, crossing over genres or formats. Um, is it, will it inspire people? Mm -hmm. Can I use it as a, as a platform to make something interesting and, you know, really, you know, try to actually do a little good. Entertainment's yeah. important. People being distracted and entertained is great, but also when you can inject some kind of deep, like you said, real change can come when you have some kind of emotional impact. I don't want to be heavy handed or change someone in some way, mm -hmm. but if I can try to teach or give some kind of meaningful lesson, even if that lesson is like, hey, it's cool to play once in a while and feel connected to other people. Mm. Even if that's the lesson, like, can I enjoy yeah, that? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, I've, like reading up on the, the Stash House, um, which I'd love for you to go into a bit more detail and what it is and how it came about, um, something that has come out of the reviews of that that I've been reading, as well as separate to that discussions I've been having with other experienced designers, is the importance of creating... The, um, the integration of the player into the narrative. And yeah, I mean, I was listening to, it was a no pro episode where they were talking about all the stuff that's come out during quarantine and someone who had done like every online escape room, they'd done like three a week for the past, like six weeks or something. They were saying by far the best stuff was the stuff that enrolled the audience member as a part of the story. And it seems like stash right. house, the reviews on that were saying it did that very effectively. And so the puzzle experience was much more seamless, much more narrative driven. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be and sort of, yeah, your philosophy on putting that narrative first. I think it's, yeah, uh, it's, uh, first of all, those kind of words are nice. I only see the flaws in anything I make. So it's, it's interesting to hear uh, that people responded. And, uh, and I agree. I, I think any good experience is going to cast the audience in something. Mm -hmm. I think you have to figure out what is the audience's role? What are they doing here? Why are they here? And you, if you have that in, uh, you know, poorly defined or not defined at all, it, I think it causes problems from the perspective. Because to me, 
you need to nail down perspective and certain things to know how to approach the way you're designing a path, whether it's just a purely narrative experience or it's interactive, being able to cast the audience and what their role is. And sometimes if you're going full LARP, they're characters, they can act, but usually they're playing themselves or a heightened version of themselves mm -hmm. where they're right. able to respond and be playful. They don't have to be entirely honest. Um, but it's still, it's important to define what that role is, even if that role is like passive observer. You know, are they, why are they in the space? Why do they buy a ticket? Like, mm. not everything has to go that in depth, but the big question comes into play of like, well, why are they buying a ticket here? And the, to me, the experience really begins is when you first read about something and you say, I want to go to that. Mm. So to me, it's like you're casting the audience and the marketing for Stash House has always been very clear about who is the antagonist and why you're going. And it's the idea that you've been invited by a entrepreneur who's a drug dealer uh, named Ray, whose job is really, you know, to invite you into the space. He's invited you to come to his business. Mm -hmm. And that was part of this idea of setting up this fiction of, you know, most spaces that have a magic circle, which is, you know, this circle you, sometimes it can be a physical space. You know, in theater, it's usually the proscenium, which is that's the portal you're watching, the invisible wall you're staring through. Mm. And then, yeah, sometimes to be cute, people come out in the audience, dance with people in the audience, but they're not really implying the audience is there. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a way to, you don't think about it too hard. Mm. But the idea of being able to say, okay, our circle really is invisible from the moment you read the website because we have Ray listed as one of the owners. He's, <laughs> he doesn't exist. Right. He's an amazing actor. He's an amazing Chicago comedian and actor named Sydney. Mm -hmm. And he's incredible. And we are able to use Ray as he's a character. People email Ray. People call for Ray. Ray mm. is the one that emails you when you buy a ticket. So it's really about casting cool. the audience as immediately you are now an associate of Ray. You're a friend of Ray. And then you show up. We ask you who sent, you know, you talk about Ray. We set up Ray very early on. Mm -hmm. So you hear his name a bunch of times. So by the, the time the game begins and you're kind of cast in the world, you know, your role changes where you go from being a friend or an associate to be like, oh, now you're a, you know, you're a um, pawn in Ray's game. Right. You are now vulnerable. You've gone from friend to becoming vulnerable mm. by the nature of just being there and seeing this video. And Oh, cool. So then that's the stakes rising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the idea that that wouldn't work as well if you did not know who this character was. And it's a super small touch. These are really small details that I want to play with even more. But for a game that we wanted to make that was in the, the that would smell like an escape room. And for, you know, Don and I, we invested our own money in this thing. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't have outside investors. We want, I, I mean, I love doing experimental weird stuff. I love playing around when, you know, you can experiment and give people weird sensations and feelings through the stuff you design. But because of this business, we had to make it also conservative enough that it resembled an escape room. It was mm -hmm. safe enough that it wouldn't scare away people that are worried. Because, I mean, most people that go and look up escape room for the first time are wondering, is it scary? Yeah. They think it's a haunted house. They may have heard of them, mm -hmm. but they still think they're scary. Uh, and so we have to be really careful about how we designed a game that used too many actors, too many weird aspects that were considered, like, difficult or hard to explain in marketing. And so... yeah. yeah. We created something that I felt was still experimental, but also safe within the confines of what is a traditional escape room, but also what has the way to cast the audience in a role that others don't. Mm. And we also worked backwards. We knew how the game was going to end, which was you flushing drugs over a toilet. Yeah, right. We wanted to create the sensation of um, something evocative, something forbidden, something dark that wasn't murdering someone. Mm -hmm. that wasn't um, something sexual or something gross or assaulty. We didn't want to make this feel like something really dark and awful. And drugs just seem like this perfect angle of, you know, I completely support legalizing all drugs and just, you know, decriminalizing them. It, it's silly that people go to jail for that. Mm. Um, so the idea of like, everyone's got an opinion on them, but drug, especially with marijuana and mm -hmm. like low, lower, like psychedelics, even just those, you who you know it's silly to not pe people have had experience with them whether you've seen them you've done them so the idea of like being yeah. around drugs in some way like they're this gray it's not black or white it's very gray mm. and we're mm. like okay we can play with this space we can play with the idea that you're holding cocaine and you've got to flush it yeah and that's and the, that's very of, permission granting isn't it it's like now yeah. i know you would never break the law i know you're a good law-abiding citizen but uh what if just for one hour uh you were a drug mule 
Or, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, it's this idea that, you know, I mean, we've had people pull out bags of real cocaine and show us what it looks like. And our immediate reaction is to look at it and go like, oh, how can we make this look more authentic? <laughs> right. And right. There's, there's, a, there's a point where we actually were thinking about buying sugar. Mm. And it was like, wait, wait, what are we doing? Like, who is this for? Like, are they, who is walking out of our game going, well, their bags aren't authentic enough. Like, it, it was an amusing thing that we considered. But it just showed, like, the level of detail we were wanting to go with. We learned mm. a lot about the uh, marijuana trade because we, add, right. we wanted to have some element of, again, this feeling of being in an illicit space that wasn't just – serial killers are common. Mm. You know, the idea of finding blood and gore is common. And, yes, we do have a little bit of violence – that's implied, but it really was about creating this atmosphere that was dark and as authentic to a stash house or a drug dealer's home as possible. Mm. And in doing a lot of research, what's really crazy is that we've gotten some reviews. One person told us about how she was, she dated a drug dealer for years right. and that this story was very close to like what actually happened. And it was really interesting where I'm both like, I'm so sorry, but I'm also like, tell us more. We want to know more. Like what else can we do to make this feel real? Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just, it was about creating this moments of, you know, and the thing, we don't have a sign. There's no signage for Stash House. We have a blank storefront. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask about that, that line between you've got to market it as what it is so people know, oh, this is an escape room. So you can't go full Stash House because right, those right. are invisible to society. Right. Um, so, well, where, where some people, some, we get a lot of people knocking and ringing, thinking that we are a head shop or that we are like something that are not there for the games. <laughs> They're like, uh, I'm here to play the, uh, the escape room. And then in the end, they just find it's a game. They're like, oh, I thought this is where I got the drugs from. I mean, someone broke into our place and thought we were probably a real dispensary. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he took some of the fake drugs and he broke. The thing I joke was that he, uh, he broke the record. He solved the whole game in 10 minutes. Um, he casually walked around with a crowbar and broke everything open and took oh my uh, God. a bunch of fake drugs. And he was just, we have... It was really hilarious. We have, I mean, think about where, where are you going to break into that has every inch of your like movement documented? He, we have his whole path. And so we have some stills of him staring with a cigarette. He had a cigarette dangling out of his mouth, like staring at one of the puzzles. And it's hilarious. He's at a crowbar in one hand. And it's like, I wonder what he thought he was breaking into because he got nothing of value except for like an iPad and some tools. And <laughs> we, we learned how easy to kick open doors uh, our door jam was. So right, we learned a yeah, lot yeah. about better security. But it was just amusing because apparently we were so convincing that, you know, he thought it was worth stealing some drugs. That's a beautiful image of, of a thief just being like, okay, where are the drugs? Where? And then they come across a puzzle and they're like, maybe I have to solve this puzzle. And before you know it. I mean, we were, I was secretly hoping he would at least try to open one of the locks just by solving something. But sadly, his trusty <laughs> crowbar. I think he must have been in a hurry. Yeah, right. Oh, that's some, that's some great marketing. So, um, so yeah, how, what, was that, what was that marketing line? At uh, what point did it stop becoming an escape room and turn into the stash house or is that a blurred message from the beginning? I think it's blurred. Um, yeah. The feeling of starting people out, again, emotions are really interesting for us. And the idea of mapping out the emotional relationship people would have with the space, again, to me begins before you even come. It right. comes when you buy a ticket. It, well, so it really begins, the relationship happens when you read about it. And the first thing you hope is that people are sharing positive word of mouth about it mm -hmm. and that the tension and excitement is rising. But then you have an ellipsis of, okay, they read about it, then they buy a ticket. When you buy a ticket to something, typically excitement builds of like, oh, we get to look forward to this. You buy the ticket. And mm -hmm. then there's an ellipsis of buy the ticket because no one's standing outside our door buying a ticket. You're buying a ticket, then you're going. And the going part is what sucks. The area we're in has horrible traffic. The parking sucks. So you're driving there. You're excited, but then you're parking. You're anxious. The, it sucks. You're frustrated. You right. finally find a place. So you walk up. We have to use the bathroom. Oh, we're running late. So there's, there's anxiety, and that drives down. Mm -hmm. But then we want the moment that you realize where you are to be like, where are we? There's no sign. Yes, we specify directions. We do have our number out there. Mm -hmm. um, but you stand up there, and you're like, guys, what do we get ourselves into? This right. looks sketchy. It right. does. It looks sketchy by design. It looks very sketchy. And that was completely intentional mm -hmm. because we wanted people to wonder what the hell is going on. Mm. And that to me is such a valuable feeling because there's nothing weirder than standing outside and the people walk by giving you a weird look. Why are you standing in front of this blank business yeah, that right. has mirrored windows and is all black with a green light? Hmm. Um, and then there's, there's a spoiler that is kind of basically at this point, the game is old enough. There is no lobby. 
when we bring you in, you're in the room. Right. You're in a waiting area that, that seems like Ray's living room. Mm -hmm. We deliberately have it dark. And it's things we learn first from doing tons of testing because iteration and testing is really valuable just to learn, you know, because half of my design, I would say, comes from designing it. The other half comes from responding to how people respond to my design. Right. right. So we learned just by having the lights off from the beginning. The space is hard to see. We designed it where you can't see a single puzzle from where you're first sitting. Mm, right. It looks like a normal apartment. There's no lock. There's no puzzle. There's nothing. It looks like an apartment. And it isn't until after the video starts, the lights come up like a production. It also visibly opens up the space for you, mm -hmm. and it gives you permission to explore. Right. And that's part of it, is using light and spatial sort of layout to create a space. Because experienced designers, you know, it's interesting because we'll, it's about control. It really is about full control. Um, a director on a set controls everything you see on the screen and you hear coming out of the speakers. Mm. They hire the team to adjust it to make it. And they are able to control because you they know exactly where you're looking at every point. You're looking at their image. Mm. And they can control everything you see and hear in that image. With experience design, it's different because you have your 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 range of things you can adjust changes considerably. Right. Not only do you have to add sound and lighting, but smell potentially, um, <laughs> texture, feeling. Everything is different across a whole range of spectrums, across rooms. And on top of that, you also can't control where they're going. How do you, you, you can create a dark ride. Right. You can create something that's processional that requires you to move through place to place. That's fine. But if you're giving someone full agency in different spots, you have to be able to craft something that if you have an intended flow for a part of a story, a part of a thing, you have to direct the hell out of it by mm -hmm. maneuvering people through, using everything from lighting cues, color, sound, placement in a room. Mm -hmm. um, all that stuff is all part of your toolkit. And that touches on psychology yeah. and the architecture of design and all the stuff that is really complex that I learned by reading and doing and trying mm. and adding my, 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 uh, the toolkit of a film director is very precise. The toolkit for an experienced designer is very big. Mm. You have a giant toolkit of all the things you have because you have one, a lot more space to play with and a lot more senses to play with. Cause yeah. unless you're in like a smell of vision theater, all you see is just what you hear and see. Mm. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a space, you can move around you choose what to touch and see and look at and smell and see. So you're playing with a lot more senses, a lot more of the, and then you add actors involved into it too. Mm -hmm. You have a lot more things and variables to play with. And most people that I know who have started to get in the space don't know all the variables they can play with and mm. how they work. I think it's the instinct of knowing what happens if I make this area brighter? What happens if I change the color of this thing? Mm -hmm. And see this, you know, and you have to run humans through it. That's it part too, is you don't know. Right. And so it's, you'll you'll have because it's 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 not like a movie. It's it's someone. Each person has their own individual experience because right. they have a unique perspective. And how do you, then you guide an experience that is also shared at the same time? And you right. have all these different sensory clues that you can use. And as an experience, uh, this is what I love about playing other people's games is when you are you're doing something and you just follow your intuition and you reflect and go, oh, isn't that interesting? Because uh, you know, maybe an instruction here told me not to do this, or I saw that, you know, here inside this envelope, there are the hints and I don't want to open it. Like you, you start to see how you are psychologically driven to do or not do things, but there's still a sense of choice involved of like, oh yeah, I could just peek at the hint or I, I could just follow this crumb. And so you do have these, there is a bit of a risk, but in escape rooms, I always found it interesting of just, you could place something at location X or you could place it, you know, 10 centimeters to the right where it's in a dimmer section of the, the room. Yep. And it's a whirlwind of different experiences for the player. 100%. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, you bring up two really good points. One is your goal, because it, it's about control of the experience. Again, if I'm a director, you, we, we can sit down, watch the same film, and we could talk about we've seen the same thing. Mm. We may not, you may like it, I may not, but we've seen what the director intended us to see in the way it's presented and in the thing, and we both have the same exact experience. In creating a space, it's really hard to control that exact same experience, not just because you and I can go off and wander, we can be in the same room and do two very different things. We can walk out going, having very different impressions of what we did. Mm. So you have to make sure every interaction that you have is balanced and even enough to basically you know, create this 
this these pieces that you know help reflect the whole and even if you only get a few you know you get a b and c and i get you know edf we can talk about it and we may have one thing that overlap but we still get by talking about it, we're in the same room together and that's also about making shared things that you do as a group and then split off allowing mm -hmm. theater people to come back together you're mm -hmm. creating these rhythms that yes it is a separate experience but it is part of the larger whole and we both have a consistent experience. Mm -hmm. I think consistency is the hardest part to nail because you know, a movie director guarantees consistency because we're looking at the same thing. Right. But we're in, we're in a room and we go off in divergent paths. You have to make sure there is consistency in the narrative, in the experience. And even if there is an asymmetrical aspect where you might have a scary moment over here and I may have a happy moment over here, they don't deviate too far from each other mm. in the story. There is a, a reason for if there is something discordant, um, there's a reason for it. But and it's all about being very intentional about, yeah, like you said, knowing that multiple people are going to be experiencing it. And something I've been noticing uh, popping up a little bit more in the immersive world, at least I just, I mean, I'm just talking through no pro because here in Australia, we pretty much, the industry is just a little baby. Um, there's <laughs> a wee baby. You're, it's going to grow up though. It's going to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And we seem to be following a trajectory that's about four years behind the States at the moment or, or thereabouts. Um, that, that gap is closing quickly. Um, right. But we're still in very much, we have a place called a, uh, a festival called Anywhere Theatre Festival, and it is ripe to become the immersive festival, but it's still, oh, it's theatre, but it's anywhere. It's in a random location. And so right. you can feel it. It's like, oh, just a few more people um, actually playing with experience design coming in here can really push that. Anyway, um, my point has just flown out of my head. <laughs> I wanted to talk about that when you do have... Um, this ability now for everyone to have a different perspective. And I'd heard mm -hmm. the Jumanji experience played on this where it actually used that and um, created as a part of their game where two groups are taken through different paths and purposefully given different perspectives. Um, and it is, I think I was listening to your interview where you were talking about giving people secret intentions or, or cards in an experience. Um, it reminded me of mafia where, yeah, people have these, these like hidden, hidden goals and objectives. Um, yeah, I mean, those games are really interesting to me. Social deduction games are really polarizing in the experience community because the idea is that typically when people go to, the idea is those are built really well for board games. Right. But most people, I think, and I go back and forth. I don't like lying to people. I hate misleading people. I don't like it. I don't mind strategizing, but outright lying is interesting. And there are times I'm in the mood for it, but I can get exhausted from a werewolf or mafia game really easily. Right. And there are, when games are built for, um, you know, trying to fool people on top of other things, I think it can be very polarizing. Right, because people right. oftentimes want to cooperate. Like that's part of why I go to experiences is to be with friends and to connect with people and just like have these larger victories rather than an individual victory. So the idea of secret trade, trader mechanisms, betrayal stuff can be interesting to me, but mm. on the whole, I'm finding more and more that I actually like cooperative stuff. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think they're absolutely fun ways to do betrayal and like, you know, hidden role games. It just, mm. to me, it's, Mixing them with an immersive experience is really interesting because the, the real challenge comes from an experience should be accessible. Like this is something I've been playing a lot with in the past year is accessibility yeah. in all forms from everything for people who are like differently abled all the way to, you know, willingness to dive in. If you are a wallflower who hates talking to actors and are afraid that everything's going to put you on the spot, mm -hmm. I want to make something that can, you know, provide to you the space to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. all the way to the same platform, same space, same experience can provide a diehard, I got to solve and do all the things mm. equally. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and the goal is, again, the bigger the space, the more opportunity I think there is to be able to create stuff like that. You just have to be able to make, design the space in a layout that is able to aid and let people like moths to a flame be drawn to spaces they feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then also encourage that discovery, encourages exploration, rewards that, and can put you on a path to finding, solving, doing, you mm. know, uh, fixing, connecting, all those verbs. But it's about designing in that space that can accommodate those multiple types of people. And I think part of that comes from if there is a betrayal mechanism and you and I have to betray each other, it really is a zero-sum game in that sense. Yeah. You, win, I lose. 
Mm. You fooled me. It goes to the end. And that to me, having that um, binary win-lose condition mm. can really alter an experience because if you hope that if you have a game you've lost, you still had fun. But right. I think on the whole, general audiences don't like losing. Yeah. And I think that that would be, that would speak to some disappointment if I, if you went to a yeah. thing and you didn't know, like maybe if it was like, betray your friends, the game that attracts yeah. the people who would. But if you rocked up to, to collaborate with your friends and you're given a card saying, you know, uh, Daniel's lying, find out what the lie is. It's like, I, I don't want to do that. Well, that, that's different though. If you have a lie and I need to find it out, but the condition of the experience doesn't, isn't predicated on winning or losing, you can have a secret. I may not find it out. And so you can have these interesting elements that are, are it's, you make it more than a binary thing and you don't make it a win-loss condition. You make right. it a scenario. You make it a story condition. Yeah, right. And I think as, as soon as you add more complexity to the story by allowing for different ways to solve and different endings that pop up without casting them as the good ending or bad ending, but rather the more complex ending, the more, you know, the side where you told me a lie and that lie wasn't discovered, where your side may have a leg up. But you just, it allows for more complex narratives. Mm. And I think the idea that there are shades of gray. And that's what's really important is this idea of not having, just calling it a win or loss, but actually unfolding of a story. And so I don't mind a betrayal mechanism if it allows for story and your entire experience does not hinge upon me um, believing you or not believing you. Because there, man, yeah, there's right. some times where I will draw a card in a game and I'll, it's like, you're the traitor. I'm like, God, I really don't want to be the traitor right now. Like, I don't want to have to play the game and have this layer on top of it. Mm. You know? Well, speaking of that, we have uh, 10 minutes left. Okay. Um, I am going to ask you for a tip and a, uh, like tips and tricks. Cause ultimately yeah. this, as I said uh, at the beginning, um, I would love to learn and, uh, put that on the record for other people to learn as well. Uh, but something that has come up, um, throughout this season of fictional reality is this, um, idea of perceived co-creation. And mm -hmm. I noticed it coming up a, a little bit through the stuff that I've been looking at that you've been doing interviews and whatnot of the importance of the, um, the character in an immersive setting, feeling like they can make choices. But as the designer, you, you want the, the character to feel like they can make choices, but how do you do it in such a way that's not so open-ended as the designer where the actor has to remember like a billion different scenarios or you have to create all these webs? Um, I guess my question is, how important is that? Um, and how how do you create a situation where a person feels like they have free will or that they can change or um, uh, be integrated into the narrative itself? I think, I mean, there's a lot of great questions in there. And I think the, the biggest thing is I love agency and I love the ability to make choices and an experience. Um, at the same time, I respect the limitations of knowing um, how complex that can be to build a narrative that can arc and split billions of different ways when choices are made. Mm. Um, I think the greatest strength of those are, are the actors. I've right. been very lucky to work some amazing talent and it's really about empowering them where you have the story down. And the big goal is to, I think it, there's a couple tools in there that you can learn to use that are really good. One is by crafting a narrative. Um, here's an example. If there's something I worked on recently that had a choice where two people are in conflict. Mm -hmm. And they, they, you see the conflict arise and they separate. And you can choose to follow either one. So in inherent, so you can choose to do three things. You could mm -hmm. ignore it and just do nothing with them and leave that story alone. Mm -hmm. Or you could choose to follow A or B. And this is in an immersive setting? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you could choose to go to A or go to B. And then they're going to say, God, can you believe that thing that happened? Man, I'm really upset. What should I do? And there is maybe a procedure for dealing with that. And you and they can go through the ritual and procedure of like how to settle a disagreement. And you can help coach that person you've went with and be like, what do you want to do? And you can choose to egg them on and say, yeah, you know what? That guy sucks. You should really go out and show him, give him what for. Or you can say, what is this all about? That seems like a silly fight. Where did this stem from? Right. And you can help give advice. And that's the thing is by giving advice, what happens is um, you, yes, you can basically say, yeah, be, fight this person. You can say, no, 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 maybe, maybe be a nice person. Um, 
or you can say what's the root cause of this and try to really investigate and find out. Um, or you could be a, a spy. You could go and be like, I'm going to go sneak up on the other guy and find out what they're doing and like sow seeds of distrust and come back and like help. Hmm. Those are all valid options. Hmm. And what happened is at the end, whoever gave the most convincing argument, you know, the, the actor would pick and then they'd go back and they'd settle their conflict. And right. there were different results. There were four different results that could happen as a result. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting was the actor had freedom to choose what they wanted based on how the audience responded. Mm -hmm. And they were actually seeking the audience's advice. What should I do? And what we had done is hidden several things. There was procedure. You could follow a procedure and encourage them to fight. You could encourage them to uh, make up and be nice. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a secret one. You could find out what really happened, that there was a third party involved who was causing issues. And mm. if you were able to find the evidence and bring it up, you could actually make them go back as friends. And so it was this interesting idea that allowed for multiple solutions mm -hmm. and none of them were seen as right or wrong. And the idea right. was that you decided the fate uh, or the decision for one of the, pe the people you were, one person you were with, the other one came in and then those created a tree of decisions. Right. That tree was communicated by very clever communication. No one saw it by silent communication. So they immediately knew as soon as they started talking again, what decision both of them had made and how to resolve that. In reality, they only had to memorize the opening scene, mm -hmm. three different ending scenes, and were able to improvise the entire middle ground because right. it was a matter of just from the audience seeding a decision. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. This, this, it really reminds me of, um, I did some forum theater. Um, are you familiar with forum theater? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it feels a lot like that. And I recently did it. So I know with, with true forum theater, um, the, you're not meant to have a presupposed ending, but I recently right, right. did it for, for a company, um, who used it as a way to go to schools to teach, um, children about like the right thing to do and the right <laughs> thing to do in school bullying situations is always tell the teacher. And so our goal was to use forum theater to teach kids to tell the teacher. But the way we did it was very similar to that process. You just said we had, um, we had the problem. We should, we role played it for the children and then we offered them, offered it to them. Okay. What should we do in this situation? And we had the, the one or two things that were effective, tell the teacher. Um, mm -hmm. and I think one other one and, we would just role play their, their suggestions, which were usually like stand up for yourself or fight back or something like that and would role play them sort of not being so successful. And right. so, but they still had this sense of agency of like, Oh wow. The idea, you know, I got to see, and then we would put them in the scenario as well. So we would act, mm -hmm. act, you know, Oh, you think you should stand up to the bully? Cool. Would you like to come up on stage and stand up to the bully? And they would see how difficult it was. And so there was this sort of like this little puppeteering going on behind the scenes. But from the experience of me as the performer was like, these kids are feeling like, Hey, wow, we figured out that the, the cool thing to do is to tell the teacher. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You give them the sense of discovery. And I think that's really powerful is people like being heard and being able to play. Mm -hmm. And so I think the biggest thing is empowering the actors to be able to know. I think it's really empowering the actors with both, the material that they need to fall back on, which yeah. is here's your scripted outs, but then letting them play and know the characters well enough that you can say anything to them. I, I look at it as like a Disney character where like you go to the parks and you're like, you I have a friend who dated a, a princess for a long time. And I was fascinated about the training they go through to mm. be able to keep a straight face in, in, in light of any kind of inappropriate message. So you could say something and they're able to deflect. They have these amazing techniques that mm. never called you out or broke the immersion. They were always able to defect, deflect, adjust, and the best magic in an immersive show for me is when I know there's scripted material. There's no way it's every else all improvised, but I cannot tell where the scripted material ends and the improv begins and flows back. Mm. And so to me, that comes from being able to empower the actors and building in moments where, you know, you don't want the, um, the, the two things come from, you can, you and I can have a conversation. And if I'm an actor and, the, and I'm playing character and mm. I know that character well, you can ask me anything. I'll answer. Yeah. Why would it matter? <laughs> what changes is okay now we're in a place where let's say you are a spy and i'm your enemy and what if you say i'm a spy how is that going to change our relationship mm. if you're telling me something that you're supposed to be holding do i just 
oh, ha ha, I know you're joking. But if you keep saying, no, really, look, here's my seat. I'm a spy. Mm. I have to be able to react to that in reality. Otherwise, that fiction is completely broken. Yeah. So you have to consider, is your experience have those moments and how do you deal with them? Because people might try to break them. Mm. And then it's about empowering them to be able to have outs for almost anything. And then it's really about, okay, if we're improvising this whole time, I want moments where we're more than just talking, but now I influence the story mm. and making it just be choices. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, you can have creative input on, okay, uh, I promised grandma we'd make her a drawing. Help me draw it. Mm. Well, it doesn't matter what the drawing is. Yeah, right. It could, and it could be that if the drawing is good, grandma goes, oh, that's lovely. Or mm. if the drawing's bad, grandma goes, oh, that's bad. And you've, you've now made a binary thing. So you could, you're able to bifurcate information or content in some interesting way. Mm -hmm. And that's really the goal is trying to find ways to classify the content you're giving mm -hmm. as, okay, you can make it seem like they can do anything. And they can. But mm. in reality, if it's good or bad, or you find a way to classify it, that then triggers one of the multiple endings or multiple flavors. What's also really crazy is with tech, there's becoming some amazing techniques that allow for you know, a lot more way to track information in an experience where you never know you're being tracked data-wise, and choices you make can follow you and project special images. So the ability to mm. personalize and allow for really free agency and a lot more free choice are coming about as more spaces get these backends in place, they're able to track your decisions and kind of hiding in plain sight. And imagine an actor with an earpiece where you come up to me and I'm like, hey, James, and you're like, I never tell you my name. I'm like, I know your favorite color is blue and I know you just came from the bar. How is that whiskey sour? Right. And I can know all that because you're approaching me. That stuff already exists. Mm. Um, so being able to incorporate tech in some really powerful ways as tools to support performers and support mm -hmm. the space are ways to really allow for embracing agency and choice that can matter. Because if you think about it, how do I know if I'm across the room from you and you make a choice that impacts the character all the way over there? Mm. How do we communicate that? And it's got to be you know, something tech-aided or a simple way to send a signal up. And those, mm. are all, those all work. But yeah. all it is about making that process for communicating, you know, what is the choice? How do I respond to it? And how is that communicated to the larger story? Mm, yeah. And as long and as you break it down where you don't necessarily see as the audience member where that is done, it becomes a little bit more magical. When, absolutely. And that's why if you can hide the tech or the communication methods, it's really effective. And lastly, it's, again, about having a really good performer. If they know the character well, if they know the word well, the world well, and by allowing them to be able to delight the audience. There is something really special mm -hmm. that I love being able to add into experiences coming from my days in video games, being able to troll a game. I don't mm -hmm. actually want to bother people in real life, mm -hmm. but there is something delightfully mischievous when you're able to be Puck or Loki and do something you wouldn't do in real life. Yeah. You can be a bit of a prankster. Mm -hmm. And there, a good example, there's a moment in a, in a show where I was a ghost and they couldn't see me and I could touch objects. So I took something and I put it on someone's seat. And as I sat down, they sat on a funny thing. And, <laughs> right. they br and I felt bad because I realized I shouldn't have done it. But it was entirely reasonable within the world. Right. And unfortunately, the actors that played the character broke. <laughs> and uh, it was just a very serious moment. But that's part of it. They should have been prepared for it. Like that's yeah, part right. of the show is I'm a ghost. What can I not do as a ghost? I should be able to go in front of you and wave my arms around and mm -hmm. you don't respond. And that's delightful because I can't do that in real life. Mm. And so allowing for people to be childish and have a little bit of a troll moment where you can kind of wink back at them and they aren't breaking the show. Yep. They are rather getting a reward for being silly and finding what the barriers are and you're winking back to them. Those moments can be really magical. When mm -hmm. if I say, don't give Betty this drink, and I, I go to give Betty the drink, something funny should happen. The game shouldn't break. But the idea is that being able to reward those special moments, and if you build those into the system and train the actors to know, when someone does something forbidden, mm -hmm. you can get, they can get a rise out of you. It's a, it's a feature, not a bug. When yeah. they feel like they can break the show and they get a wink back from the creator going like, you know, naughty, naughty, but like, it's pretty funny. There's a moment that I loved in a show where I was able to, you know, a character was dead and I had to make them come back to life by like making them dance. And it was a fiction, Weekend at Bernie style. Mm -hmm. And at the end, I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, we got the thing we needed, but what if I give this woman back her husband? He's dead. What is she going to do? And I gave it. And the, the actor playing that wife was like, oh my God, what did you do? And it was so funny and unexpected that they had like role played with it that I was, I was amused because I'm like, I just kind of want to see what happens. Right. And the fact that an experience can let me, it just gives me tingles being like, you feel like anything is possible at that point. 
Totally. And I, I really resonate with that on my time with Cluedo, the interactive game where the yeah. audience members, they're enrolled as, um, as detectives helping you solve the murder. And you get these cheeky people in there who they'll, and you know, a lot of our training for that is to deal with these, um, these, uh, and what are they side like problems that can happen? People trying to break the game and right. they, they bloody love it. You know, they'll come up and they'll make some modern reference and then you'll just be like, I, it's set in 1936, our world. Mm-hmm. And when you're just like, I don't know what you're talking about. They sort of go, oh gosh. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot we're in uh, 1936. But then other times they'll be like, well, what would happen if I went and did this? Or, you know, why don't we try this? And you go, that's a great idea. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Let's go and do that. And knowing that the, per- the actor you're going to go and interact with, with this fellow detective of like, yeah, ask him this question that's completely outrageous. Um, and they think, oh yeah, you know, I've like, I've somehow gamed the game a little bit, um, you know, making a reference to the board game or something like that. And the actor's just fully ready. And you know it, you, you have this wink between the actor of like, oh, I have a detective who wants to ask you about a question. <laughs> and they sort of get roasted in front of everyone. These people who are, who are game breakers, they love that because they're like, oh, you were expecting me. And now we're sort of like on the same level. Yeah, it really is rewarding and feeling like anything is possible if you can do that. And it allows for, you know, these transgressive acts you can't do in real life. You don't want to mess with people in real life, but there's something really satisfying about being able to be playful and and know you're not actually breaking the experience. Yeah. And so being able to anticipate those as opposed to embracing for them, but I know build them in, mm. anticipate them. And they, they, I think they actually are easy to build in when you have, you know, naturally trained your performers and built your space to acknowledge transgressive behaviors. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're Easter eggs, they're winks, they're nods. And, you know, I, any game that I play that when I'm in a tutorial and it's like, go here and I go backwards, you know, yeah, you hit a bliss screen, you just, you're walking against an invisible wall. But when a character yells at you and like, really, you're going over there, come on, the arrow's over here, are you blind? Like, yeah, you know, when yeah. it, it mocks me, it's kind of like, okay, that's funny. I really like it when, you know, things can build in the guardrails that don't break or derail and kind of like you said, roast or give a light slap. But mm. it's still, I don't know, it teaches you that there's anything's possible. And it, it's sort of like that idea of synecdoche of one mm. piece referencing the whole mm-hmm. and you assume one little surprise means there might be an infinite number of surprises elsewhere and yes. it speaks to that one thing can speak to the whole experience that's why i think it's so important to be able to allow for moments like that to pop up because you don't know what's going to come from someone's ideas and the hope is that if you build a platform like i said with the drawing if your dro- goal is to draw grandma a drawing Mm-hmm. you know, and you draw a drawing and it does the job or it scares her, you know, again, you create these different categories of what a drawing can be and you leave the actor to decide whether it satisfies one of these needs or, and if it does folding it in where it feels like they're making it up and being like, Oh, you drew a dinosaur. Is that a dinosaur? Oh, it's a cactus. Oh, it's, it's very good. You know, and, and you're able to, you know, roast them a little bit, but then saying, you know, I do have a need for a plant that you know looks like a dinosaur and you put it up and you're like oh did 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 i make it did it did i break it did i do it like right and you're like right. oh no you did you did very good and you <laughs> yeah, feel like yeah. oh this sh-. so he's creating those i think those moments and platforms for the show to respond to people in really special ways i'm sure mm. that's well over killing the subject but as you can tell i think those can be really special moments yeah and those can really make your um your players just sort of passing through players to loyalists to your to your um your art that you create because they go right well i'm in you know you've i've i will suspend my disbelief now because i know it's worth more for me and my enjoyment to suspend my disbelief than now to try and break the machine yeah i think it's it's also being able to you know i i don't see, i see some people's trolls that just want to break it but i also see people as being curious mm. people that want to see how far you know it's either people who are refusing to spend suspend disbelief and want to break it or you know on the other side of it people who are so into the story that they believe, well, what would happen if I did something really bad? Because I believe this character is going to react this way and I want to see it happen. Right. And so it's, it's to me, I don't take it as an insult either way. It means either I haven't done a good enough job and I got to shock you back into it, mm. or I've done such a good job in making something that you feel like anything's possible and either one needs to be able to acknowledge you. Yeah, right, right. Well, Tommy, thank you so much. I could talk about this stuff for much longer, for double, triple the time, which I'm, I'm sure you get all the time. So um, I just want to reiterate again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's, it's, it's eye-opening. And uh, 
yeah, I hope we can continue a communication as, as time goes on. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, this, this would be super cool. Um, I, my current mission is trying to, and has been for a while, is trying to figure out how to make time travel. Someone believe in time travel. And, um, and I, I think it's possible. I think you know, my whole goal with immersive experiences is just for one tiny little moment, just that, hey, w- what, maybe? Um, and anyway, that's going off on another tangent, but I would love oh, to. I, I, you, yeah, we, we should talk. I have, I've, I've always want, I have a, a scripted idea for how to make that work. So I would love to be able to like help. But I mean, that's the thing is I think it's about creating a magical world where anything is possible. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, that, that to me is one of the things that I will always dream for is the more tools I get under my disposal, the better I can convince people of something. Yeah, right. Well, let's, let's wrap it up for today. Thank you so much, um, everyone who's listening or watching. There's links below um, to to get in contact with Tommy, see what he's doing. Um, We'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks again. Well, wasn't that just a lovely little episode? Uh, Another thank you again to Tommy Houghton for just accepting a random email from me. And going, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you for an hour, uh, it or, or more. Who knows? Huh. So that was our second last episode. There will be one more episode released in a fortnight from now. It's a it's a lovely little episode. I'll be talking from Stephen from, oh gosh, Stephen, please forgive me. Um, I want I always want to say escape ages. It's not that escape ages, escape ages, escape pages, escape ages. And he has released a book called Flatpak, which is a puzzle. It's a it's an it's a furniture catalog from a prominent uh, European furniture making company. Well, it's not from them. Uh, it's in no way uh, resembles them at all in any way, shape, or form. In like you couldn't even you wouldn't ever associate the two together. But if you were to imagine a you know a, a sort of like Swedish, let's say, uh, furniture, let's say, catalog, let's say, homewares catalog. Um, this is a puzzle-based version of a catalog that sort of is designed in uh, in a similar aesthetic. Anyway, Stephen is, uh, Stephen is lovely. Tommy was lovely. All of my guests for this season have been lovely. I will miss 2020. It has been, uh, it's been a hell of a year, hasn't it? Hasn't it just been a hell of a time? Now I'm going to make a wild assumption here that if you have spent an entire hour and six and a half minutes listening to this episode, then um, then it's been probably a wild year for you too, but not as wild as it could have been. So I wish you the best. I will touch base with you all again in two weeks' time, and then from there, I will be time-traveling a little bit. I think I'm going to go into the past and the future, and I'm just going to talk to some people who aren't in this year or this era. I'm getting a bit over the Industrial Revolution, but I'll come back to it. It's got a warm... There's a place in my heart for it, um, as well as my sentence that I must outlive here. Uh, by law. So, nonetheless, thank you for listening. Tune in in two weeks' time for our next episode. And...